Blog Talk Radio. Hey, this is Anthony C. Ferrante, director of Sharknado. This is Seth Shostak, senior astronomer at the SETI Institute. This is Frank Joseph. I'm the author of an essay in the latest book, Lost Secrets of the Gods. Hi, this is Nick Redfern, the author of Close Encounters of the Fatal Kind. Hi, this is Jesse Proust, the producer of JFK, The Smoking Gun. Hello, this is Marty Langford. I'm the director of Doom, the untold story of Roger Corman's The Fantastic Four. Hi, this is Kevin Randall, author of Alien Mysteries, Conspiracies, and Cover-Up. Hi, this is Tracy Roberts, founder of Closet Security. I'm Jeremiah Bomek, the producer of The Real of Horror. Hi, my name is Bill Hall, author of The World's most haunted house. Hi, this is Micah Hanks, and I'm the author of the book, The Ghost Rockets. And you're listening to Emmy on the Graveyard Shift talk show, blogtalkradio.com. Hello, I'm Annette McDougal for the Pop Show Network, here live from Hollywood Boulevard, minutes before the world is about to end. Fear, rage, panic, paranoia, and $20 baptisms offered on Sunset Boulevard are going to do nothing to change our fate. Yes, we're all going to die. We're all going to die in a sh- Shut 
snow-capped mountaintops of Middle Earth. Orbiting above the Earth in a stolen alien spacecraft. The Graveyard Shift Online Radio Talk Show. Now, strap on your seatbelt, get ready to kneel, true believers, because here's your host, Emmy. Listening to episode three. It is episode three, right? Yes. Go sex and other things Emmy likes to interrupt. Who the hell wrote that title? I have no idea. Probably Steven did. So, what am I going to be talking about tonight, everybody? Well, you know, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Batman's head on the lance. No, I didn't say that right. That's not how he said it in the movie, is it? We're going to be talking about a whole bunch of stuff tonight. I'm going to be debuting a um, a special message from author Louis Proud about his book, Strange Electromagnetic Dimensions, which you can purchase on Amazon.com or any major bookstore. In the book, Louis shows how pretty much all things from the mundane to the mysterious are tied together by a vast and largely invisible electromagnetic web. Now, that's an interesting theory because this is not the first time I've heard this theory. In fact, I know a specific Graveyard Shift fan, whose name I will not mention, but I know they're out there, who has this exact same theory or similar. So anyway, he examines ESP, poltergeist disturbances, psychokinesis, UFOs, spontaneous human combustion, one of my personal favorite subjects. I mean, who doesn't like spontaneous human combustion? I mean, come on. And other paranormal phenomena from an electromagnetic perspective. You know who I think would love this is Magneto. I think Magneto would absolutely go gaga over this episode. It's just a shame that, you know, he's out there fighting the mutant versus human fight and he's not available. And you know how he is. He just doesn't want to. He's not chill. Is that what the kids are saying nowadays? They're not chill. I don't know what the kids are saying nowadays. God, I'm old. Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to the greatest talk show that ever has been, is, and ever will be on www.blogtalkradio.com slash thegraveyardshift. Make sure to follow us or go to our Twitter feed at hashtag EmmyShiftShow. Also, look for us on Facebook.com under the Graveyard Shift. Make sure it's the right one. It's the one with the most listeners, and it's also the one that has the newest posts. You can actually send us a request to add you as a member, and we will gladly do so, in which you will be one of the shifties, one of our fans. That's what we call them. They call Because we're cool like that. We're just, you know, we're, we're yeah, we're, we're cool like that. So, yeah. Yeah. Right? Is that, did I say that right? I'm not sure. <laughs> well, where do I begin? What was that sound? What do you mean, what was that sound? That was me throwing a CD. What? Get 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 a life, Stephen. Jeez, talking about what that sound was. You know, it's been one heck of a busy news time, hasn't it? There's been, well, I mean, I'm talking about in the weird and wonderful world that we live in. By the way, did you know that that was a Twitter trend? Weird and wonderful? 
And Dan, Daniel, or excuse me, I mean Daniel, I think that's how they, his friends pronounce his name. He, um, yeah, you know who Daniel is. He's our official show composer and musician, Daniel, Dan Edenfield of Throne of Anguish fame. Right, right. Oh, I didn't say that. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, you do, you know, those of you that don't know, there are many instrumental, uh, awesome, you know, musical musings that we play during the show. And the ones that we play most often are either by Dan Edenfield of Throne of Anguish fame or Holden Strianez and Ricky Mosher of East Coast Raid fame. So, and if you're interested in any of them, you can, um, I think you can find them on SoundCloud, I believe. They're on SoundCloud under East Coast Raid, or you can look for them with uh, Holden Strianez, that's S-T-R-I-A-N-E-S-E, and the first name is H-O-L-D-E-N and Ricky Mosher, M-O-S-H-E-R. So please do look them up. Support local artists, guys. I mean, I know they're not local in the sense like we're in Florida and they're not in Florida, but so what? It's still local. They're in the, they're American. We want to support local artists, independents out there that are struggling to make it because I know how hard it is. I've been there. So there's been quite a lot of news. What? What, Stephen? What? I am going to play. Okay, fine, fine. Okay, so this is what's going to happen. Stephen wants me to talk to you about the actual Louis, Louis Proud file that we're going to be playing. So this is what happened. Louis um, doesn't actually, he's not, I'm not going to be interviewing him. He's, he sent us a recording of himself talking about his book, and um, I'm going to be playing it later tonight. So, but first, before I do that, I'm going to go through the news and what have you and blah, 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 yakety schmackety, okay? There, is that, is that better for you, Stephen? Was that, was that helpful? Good. So, why don't we just get started with the news? Why don't we do that? Are you ready for that? Let's go. Let's get started. Okay, here we go. Well, let's see. What's what's up first? Well, let me see. Um, those of you that have been listening and watching all the uh, awesome updates from NASA about their uh, Curiosity rover. How, how many, By the way, I'm curious about this. How many of my listeners out there are actually going to NASA's website and looking at the images and looking for aliens? I'm curious about this. If you are, please... Do tweet us and let us know that you're doing this because I think it's rather fascinating that there's people who listen, guys. Look, look, I am along. I am just along with you on wanting there to be aliens on another planet. Of course, I want us to find something, you know, alien or weird on Mars, but I just don't think it's going to happen. Here's why. Let's say that Mars was a place that had life, regardless of what it was, whether we are the ones that came from Mars or not. I know there's people out there who think that. I don't know why they think. I mean, I know why they think that, but I don't think that's the case. But at any rate, if that was the case, think about this for a second. How long would that evidence have had to sit there? Think about how many millions of years of history the Earth has. Now, you might be thinking, well, wait a minute, humanity doesn't really have, I mean, in the grand scheme of things, as far as the Earth is concerned, humanity only has upwards of over 2,000 plus years. Okay, that may be true, but you're also not 
taking into consideration the Neanderthals. You're not taking into consideration uh, any any of that kind of thing. You know, even before then, and you know, we were around in the Ice Age. You know, again, that's part of the Neanderthal pro, um, history. So that's still a long time for any evidence to be sitting in Mars waiting to be discovered. And if it would be sitting in Mars, it would not be something that you know, would be hard to figure out. I mean, it would be pretty, there would be signs, you know, like for example, when an archaeologist or a paleontologist goes searching for evidence and he goes to a site that he feels has a sweet, a sweet spot, you know, a place where he thinks, for example, um, if somebody's going to go look for dinosaur bones, they're going to go somewhere where they know there's dinosaurs, that there has been dinosaurs or where they think there's been dinosaurs. So they might look for an area that used to be a lake or used to be an ocean or something that, you know, maybe isn't a forest now but was before. So, and then they'll look for evidence of, you know, fossils. Well, that's kind of what the rover's doing, except it's going further back than that. First, first the rover has to determine whether there was life at all, like, I'm talking about microbes, I'm talking about molecules, you know, uh, anything. And so far, all that it's discovered is that Mars, at one point, did have water. So that's all we know. That's for, This is a fact. There's no denying this. They did discover evidence that NASA was happy about, that was a rather, that satisfied NASA enough to say that Mars did at some point have water that we know is one of the major ingredients to harbor life as we know it. Now, that's the important thing, as we know it. There are so many, so many things, so much evidence that we have discovered even just recently of animals that that thrive and survive in conditions that we never thought life could survive. For example, there are animals that live in the deepest, deepest part of the ocean around thermal air vents that have temperatures that rival volcanoes. Now, you and I both know how hot a volcano is. You guys have seen that video and that, you know, animated gif of that Coke can and what a volcano does to it, right? Which, by the way, why would you do that to a Coke can? A Coke can's meant to be poured, you know, opened and poured over ice, not over volcanoes. That's that, that's crazy stuff. But at any rate, you guys have seen what a volcano can do. You've seen how hot it is. Now, can you imagine an animal living near a volcano, like actually surviving, eating off of a volcano, of a volcanic gases? Because I know I can't, but how do we know? For all we know, in the deepest part of a volcano, there might be life. Now, of course, we don't know that because, as far as I can, as far as I know, there is there are no instruments that can yet survive to go that deep inside a volcano while it's active and get readings to tell us if there's anything alive down there. As far as I know, we haven't gotten that far in our technology. Maybe someday we will. Who knows, maybe one of these drones can actually be useful instead of killing people and go down there and, and do some good, you know? But the, the but I digress. Rewinding. 
We know for a fact that there are animals in the deep part of the ocean that do exist around these thermal air vents, and they survive. I mean, we're talking about tube worms. We're talking about shrimp. There's shrimp that live down there. I mean, I wouldn't eat them because, you know, they survive off of methane and whatever. They must be disgusting. You know, I don't know. Yes, Stephen, I know you would eat them. You would eat anything. Stephen, I'm not going to repeat that. No, I'm not. No, you do whatever you want to Charlie Manson's ghost, okay? Go ahead. So anyway, getting back to that, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff. You know, there was that Dumbo octopus that we discovered recently. You know, there was the the frilled shark that was that these fishermen, I think it was called a frilled shark, that these fishermen um, caught that is a very ancient animal. It has it has ancestry that links it back to the dinosaurs. So, you know, there's things that have been around that should not be around. My point is, you know, I'm going to quote Jurassic Park. Life finds a way. It will find a way. So I guess what I'm trying to say is there's nothing wrong with looking at these Mars rovers images and thinking that you see a cat statue or or a human statue or, you know, <laughs> or Hank Hill. <laughs> Which, by the way, the person that thinks they saw Hank Hill on Mars – I got nothing for you. That all I'm going to do is quote Hank Hill. That boy ain't right. I totally didn't say that the right way. My wife can do a better Hank Hill impression than me, and she's a woman. But there you go. Look, if there is something worth our getting excited about on Mars, we will find out. NASA's not going to hold it back from us. And I know many of you out there are yelling at me right now. Yes, Emmy, don't be fooled. They've done it before. Look, guys, look at all the money that we're spending. Look at all the millions and billions of dollars that that we're spending on Mars research. Do you honestly think if nothing if – if, do you think they really are going to hold back if they find something? I have spoken to astronauts. I've spoken to scientists of NASA. They are just as curious and just as eager to share information as we would be. Now, does that mean that if they see an alien base, they're going to come and tell us? Probably not. But I pretty much can guarantee you there's no alien bases on Mars. If there were, um, I'm pretty sure the rover would not still be there. So let's continue. The, the rover. Well, as you can tell, as you know, there have been images of the rover uh, you know, circulating the web catching everything from a cat statue to an Elmo doll. No, I'm kidding about the Elmo doll, but you get the picture. It's just everything. You, you know, they, some people say they saw an alien creature. Some people say they saw a hedgehog. I kid you not, a hedgehog. Now, why would a hedgehog be in a desert planet? I don't know, but there you go. Now, the latest thing that made the, the, the internet waves is the picture of what people think is the first... <laughs> Oh, my God, this is the best one. I, I, I think this is probably the best one. Oh, God. Let me see if I can do this right. Apparently, we have evidence of a human non-terrestrial officer performing maintenance on the Curiosity rover. <laughs> no, 
I'm not making this up. I'm going to go ahead and share this with you guys. I'm going to put this on our Twitter page so you can see this for yourself because th- this is this is awesome. This is one of my – I think this is probably my favorite of all the uh, the Mars rover gotchas. You know, like, oh, we know, we know that there's something there. I mean, geez almighty. I mean, what's next? Are they going to say that – the the rover really isn't on Mars that it's on that it's in the desert somewhat. What do you mean they're already saying that, Stephen? Well, of course they are. Then these are the same people who think that that, that the moon the, the Mars the moon landing was faked. I mean, come on. Wait, what do you mean, Stanley Kubrick? You know, yes, I'm a fan of The Shining, but I don't subscribe to that theory. I mean, come on, don't no, Stephen. I'm not going to even get into that. Okay, I. You already know that I do not agree with that. Why should I even give it a second thought? Yes, all right. Oh, oh God, Stephen. All right, I'll get into it maybe later. Okay, not right now, not right now. So let's get back to this maintenance, this maintenance, um, you know, picture. What, what, what is this about? Well, first of all, I just shared it on Twitter. Okay, so um, going by the claims, according to the article, it says that going by the claims of a U.S. A UFO researcher. We might have obtained the first photographic evidence of somebody's claim that they found fleet-to-fleet cargo transfer records relating to the ET technology-based off-world space operations of U.S. non-terrestrial officers, quote-unquote. Now, many in the truth movement have believed Mars to be the off-world base of Pentagon's non-terrestrial officers. Now, according to an unnamed researcher who contacted a certain UFO website, the NASA image, which you can see right now on our Twitter feed, shows what could be evidence backing his story. Okay, so I'm looking at this image right now. Now, the image purports to be a picture of what they say looks like a NASA engineer performing maintenance on the Curiosity rover. Now, I'm looking at this picture. First of all, I'm wondering, why the heck would the rover take a picture of the ground in its own shadow? That's kind of weird. I will say that. That is a little bit strange. Uh, Maybe there was something on the ground that they wanted to look at or get a closer image of. Uh, As far as the shadow is concerned, let me tell you something. Anybody who knows anything about shadows know that They can be anything. I think what this is, is it's two words. Shadow puppet. Yeah. I think the rover has been, wait a minute, go, no, work with me here. I think the rover has become self-aware and I think it's performing shadow puppets. Now look, I can, I can prove it to you. Look on the top part, the top right part of the image. You can see what looks like two little eyes, two little slits for eyes. And a tiny dot, which I guess might be a rock, but I'm going to say it's a nose. And then on top of those two eyes, it looks like a little forehead and, and like a little helmet that kind of slants off to the back. You guys see what I'm talking about? Yes, yes. I know that's the rover's metallic head or whatever. I don't care. It looks like a head to me. It looks like an anime head. Well, you know, and if you follow the, the anatomy, if you, if you use human anatomy, you can, you know, on the right of the, of the rover is kind of the rover's like what can be said, it's the leg, kind of, sort of. And he's like doing this weird shape with his hand to make it look like it's a person. 
kind of like you know, hey, you can make your your hand do bunny rabbit shapes on the on the wall with a flashlight. So the rover was just saying, ha ha, look, I can do shadow puppets too. So there you go. That's what I think it is. That's what I, I yeah, I'm I'm definitely convinced that's what it is. I, I yes, I am, Steve. Shut shut up, Steven. You don't know anything. Look. If you guys want to call in and give your own two cents, please, you're, feel, you're welcome to do so. The number is area code 347-237-5187. That's area code 347-237-5187. Now, I'm running out of time here. Um, I, I'm going to do one more story, and then I'm going to go ahead and, uh, you know, play the Louis Proud file. More on the Mars rover stuff. Now, if you look at, you can go to YouTube and look up ancient aliens on Mars. And there's actually several videos that are pretty interesting. I think the guy gives some pretty nice comparisons to actual statues that you can find in Earth and then things that he thinks he sees on Mars. The only problem is the stuff that you see on Mars is not very clear. And I'm, I, I don't, I'm not trying to accuse anybody of this and I'm not accusing the person who made the videos of this but everybody knows that Photoshop is something that every, anyone can learn how to use so you know it's possible now a lot of times Curiosity will take pictures of these rocks and it looks these some of these images may look like an animal statue and strange artifacts you can be the judge I personally think what happened was curiosity bumped into a rock and it wanted to make it, you know, maybe, maybe it was one of those like, like animals that turn into rocks. Like, you know what I mean? Like the, like Medusa kind of thing. And then it, like, if you touch it, it turns into stone. And then the Rover wanted to murder the animal to make it look like an accident. So it tipped it over, you know, tipped it over. And then there you go. That's how that happened. That's what I think happened. <laughs> I know I'm such a jerk. All right, so ladies and gentlemen, look, I'm going to go ahead and take a tiny little break. When I get back, I'm going to play the, the file of Louis Proud. If you want to call in and give your own two cents, either of the stories I just talked about, or if you want to talk about what Louis Proud's theory is, you can call us at area code 347-237-5187. That's area code 347 Two three seven five one eight seven, or you can go to blogtalkradio.com slash the graveyard shift and join in the conversation. We'll be right back. This is Emmy. You're listening to the graveyard shift, and I am punching in. Be right back, ladies and gentlemen. Where is that stupid thing? I was gonna play it, and now it's not there, and I'm pissed off. Where the hell is it? Where is it? Oh, there it is. We'll be right back. Put your warm speed on hold, Graveyard Shift fan. Our illustrious host, Emmy. Why the hell does he always say that word illustrious? We'll be right back after this break with more shifty, yeah, like shitty awesomeness. I can't believe this guy. Who the hell does he think he is? Um, oh, okay. Um, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll be right back.
We'll be right back on the Graveyard Shift. BlogTalkRadio.com slash the Graveyard Shift. If you want to call in and discuss Emmy with Emmy anything, please call Erico 347-237-5187. Or go to hashtag Emmy Shift Show. We'll be right back. Punch and shifties.
You're listening to a really funny interlude. Um, well, I call it an interlude. I don't know if that's what their name of it is. It's by Holden Strianez, Ricky Mosher of East Coast Raid fame. They did a little uh, instrumental uh, kind of bumper for me for the show, and I love it. I think it's hilarious. And pretty much like everything they do. They're extremely talented guys. Um, I know they told me I'm going to give them a, a, a complex if I keep <laughs> if I keep um, you know complimenting them. But I'm the truth is the truth. What are you going to do? So here we are. I promised you I was going to play the message, the announce, the you know Louis Louis Proud talking about his book Strange Electromagnetic Dimensions. Before I do that though, glitter bomb. You know what? I love Vermin Supreme. He is so awesome. I know that <laughs> what? What do you mean? What do you mean nobody knows who he Steven, dude, you do not want to say that to this audience. What do you mean I have to say who he is? All right, all right. Oh God, do I really need to say who he is? I mean, seriously. So many people should already know who Vermin Supreme is. And he's a pretty recognized person. Basically, well, let me say the story first. And th- No, I guess I shouldn't do that. I should say who he is. Let me see. How can I begin? Well, he's a political activist, first of all. And really, <laughs> I wish he was the one that was in charge of the country instead of the current idiot-in-chief that we have right now, to be quite honest with you. Um Oops, did I just reveal my distaste for our president? Oopsie. Yikes. So, who is Vermin Supreme? Vermin Supreme is an American performance artist and activist who is known for running as an alternative candidate in various local, state, and national elections in the U.S. That's basically who he is. I mean, he has been, and what he looks like is he's basically, you know, he's he's got a beard. He dresses in absolutely... Just this god-awful tacky clothing, which he does on purpose, and then he wears a large – I I want to say it's a rain boot, like one of those boots you wear on the in the rain, but I'm not sure. I may, may, It might be a military boot. I'm not really 100% sure. But anyway, he wears that on his head, and apparently he was in the news recently because he glitter-bombed politician Randall Terry. Um. And <laughs> oh god! And you know, for what for those of you who don't know what I'm talking about with the glitter bomb, if you don't know this yet, there there was a business that was a glitter bomb delivery service that was created by Australian Matthew Carpenter, and he made a website that was literally shipyourenemiesglitter.com, and he made bank big time. In fact. He did so well that he had to sell his business, and he sold it for $85,000. What? Don't worry about it. That's Naruto. I don't mind Naruto being heard in the background. So, (laughs) in fact, Carpenter admitted his own business idea was horrible, and in a plea to customers, he said, quote, Hi, guys. I'm the founder of this website. Please stop buying this horrible glitter product. I'm sick of dealing with it. Sincerely, Matt. (laughs) So whoever bought his website was essentially betting that they could turn a profit, leapfrogging on the buzz that he generated. 
The concept behind Carpenter's startup business is that if someone opens an envelope full of glitter, they will inevitably get that glitter all over their clothes and hair. And as anyone knows, that can be a pain in the butt. So part of his frustration was that apparently people just couldn't resist the idea of spending a few bucks to send an envelope full of glitter to their friends and foes. He says that orders came in totaling more than $20,000 before he put a pause on all future purchases and literally begged customers to go away. That amounts to somewhere about 2,500 orders since Carpenter was charging a fairly reasonable $8 per bomb. That, that's brilliant. That's genius. Absolute genius. Strange as it may sound, the odds actually favor the new domain owner turning a profit. Glitter bombing has a strangely rich history. I mean, last week you could you could look up a YouTube video of one kid glitter bombing his nosy dad went viral. 1.6 million views. And it was, you know, two years ago, Lindsay Lohan was famously glitter bombed on her way to court. So, and as I, you know, as I said, you know, Vermin Supreme glitter bombed this one politician. I love that. I think that's my favorite. So now for his part, Carpenter plans to honor his already processed glitter bomb request, writing on his site, you guys have a sick fascination with shipping people glitter. We've received all orders and working through them. There was a ton, so be patient. I mean, this is awesome. This proves that capitalism works. I know all my anarchist fans out there are yelling boo at me. Well, boo yourselves, silly boys and girls. This proves it. Capitalism works if it's done right. This guy was able to make bank on a on glitter. Glitter. It's called the profit motive. Play a hate it all you want, but it works. It works. You it this this also proves that you can make money for anything. I mean, I'm over here busting my hump trying to make bank with this show, which, you know, so far you know, yeah, I'm, I've got 45,000 fans, yay me, but, you know, it hasn't moved me into a McMansion yet. Maybe one day it will, I don't know. You just got to find that sweet spot, that, that niche that will make you the moolah that you need, you know, that you want. So, uh, it's out there, guys. I mean, if this guy was able to find it, that means other people can find it with other things. I mean, and he, you know, he was able to make even more money saying, you can't do it anymore. You know, Cartman, he basically did the Cartman method. Remember that in South Park when Eric Cartman said that, that nobody could enter his theme park? <laughs> if you don't know what I'm talking about, go watch the South Park episode, Cartman Land, where Eric Cartman gets his own theme park. And then basically he's the only one that can get into it. It's a brilliant strategy. And then, every, of course, everybody wants it, right? They want in. So anyway, there you have it. All right, so I'm running out of time here, guys. I know you're waiting very patiently, and you don't have to wait anymore. Without further ado, here is Louis Proud talking about his uh, great book. Oh, wait, I didn't say that right. The illustrious Louis Proud talking about his book, Strange Electromagnetic Dimensions. Enjoy. I will talk to you guys afterwards. Here it is. My name is Louis Pratt, and I'm recording this to tell you about my latest book, which is called Strange Electromagnetic Dimensions, The Science of the Unexplainable. It's my third book. It's 
published by New Page and it was released in November 2014. I'm a writer and researcher on Fortean or paranormal phenomena. I currently live in Darwin, Australia and over the years I've explored a, a lot of different topics in the paranormal field including sleep paralysis, psi, which includes such things as psychokinesis and telepathy, as well as poltergeists, UFOs and just about everything else. And I've always believed that the best way to study the paranormal is from a scientific perspective. And by that I mean a fun and open-minded scientific perspective, not a narrow-minded, mechanistic scientific perspective. So that's the approach I try to employ with my research and writing on these topics. But back to the focus of this discussion, my latest book. Now, as the title suggests, the theme of the book is electromagnetism. And the significance of the title relates to the fact that pretty much every aspect of the paranormal, I've discovered, has an electromagnetic dimension to it. And besides examining a number of paranormal topics in relation to electromagnetism, I also look at a host of rather less spectacular topics. And I begin with the topic of magnetoception. What is magnetoception? Well, it's the ability to detect and navigate via the Earth's magnetic field. And it's an ability that's been observed in a huge number of life forms on Earth, including fruit flies, honeybees, homing pigeons, cows, sharks, sea turtles, and even bacteria. So we know that this ability exists in very simple life forms and very complex life forms. But what about human beings? Could we in fact be making use without necessarily being conscious of it, of a magnetic sixth sense. No doubt an ability like this would have been of great benefit to our hunter-gatherer ancestors. If they did possess this ability, what about modern humans? Does it still exist in humans, even though we're not necessarily using it as much or we don't have a reason to use it? Well, amazingly, there is some evidence that modern humans possess this ability. There's evidence, for example, that the human brain and the human ethmoid bone contains traces of the mag magnetic mineral magnetite. So could there be magnetite-loaded cells in the human body which are designed to respond to external sources of electromagnetism, including the Earth's magnetic field? What about the research of Dr. Robin Baker? Dr. Robin Baker was a biologist at Manchester University, uh, he's still around, but he's not active in this area anymore. But he did a series of ex experiments throughout the 1970s whereby he placed blindfolded children on buses and he drove them around the countryside, took them on long, winding trips throughout the countryside in order to basically disorient them. And then with the blindfold still on, he took them off the bus and got them to point in the direction of home. He discovered that in many cases the children could point in the direction of home, despite still being blindfolded. He obtained some very impressive results, a lot of amazing evidence that humans do possess this ability. And although few scientists have bothered to try and reproduce Baker's experiments, lately there's been a lot of focus by scientists on this light-sensitive protein called cryptochrome. And we know that cryptochrome controls circadian rhythms in plants and animals. We also know that it plays a role in magnetoception in fruit flies and many other living things. And it turns out that the human retina is packed with cryptochrome. It also turns out, because an experiment has proven this, that human cryptochrome 
functions as a magnetic sensor in fruit flies that have been genetically engineered to lack their own version of cryptochrome. But now we come to the second topic explored in the book, which is geomagnetic disturbances. And do they cause depression and other health problems in humans? And in order to properly examine this question, it's important to realize that we live in a sea of electromagnetic energy. And this is made up of both natural sources like the Earth's magnetic field and Schumann resonant signals, as well as artificial sources, for example, from cell phones, electrical appliances, power lines, and so on. And by far the most important natural source of electromagnetism is the Earth's magnetic field. Although it's something we take little notice of, the Earth's magnetic field is extremely unstable. It's always changing. And this is thanks in part to the activity of the sun and various other cosmic factors, including lunar factors, which is something I deal with in my book, The Secret Influence of the Moon. But anyway, moving on, there are, for example, solar storms, which can cause big disturbances in the Earth's magnetic field, otherwise known as the geomagnetic field. And every living creature on Earth, including us, is tuned to the Earth's magnetic field. And so whenever there's a change in the magnetic field, there is also a change within the human body. And many of these changes are hormonal in nature. Studies have shown, for example, that whenever there's a high amount of geomagnetic activity, it can cause the pineal gland, the tiny pinecone-shaped gland in the middle of the brain, just behind the eyes, to produce less melatonin than normal. And melatonin, of course, is what regulates the sleep-wake cycle. At night, when we turn off the light, the pineal gland increases its production of melatonin, and this makes us feel sleepy. In the morning, when our eyes sense light, the pineal gland decreases its production of melatonin, and therefore we feel more awake. So not only is the pineal gland sensitive to light, it's also sensitive to external electromagnetic fields. Either this is a direct sensitivity or an indirect sensitivity. But that's something I look at in the book. I'm not going to deal with that now. What matters is the fact that geomagnetic factors and, of course, artificial electromagnetic fields can suppress melatonin production and thereby disrupt the sleep-wake cycle. And having a disrupted sleep-wake cycle is, of course, what causes jet lag. Shift workers who have very disrupted sleep-wake cycles generally have much poorer health and people who don't do shift work. There is, for example, a high incidence of cancer among shift workers. And it's also important to recognize that melatonin acts as a free radical scavenger, meaning it clears up all those free radicals that cause harm to the cells of the body, consequently lowering our risk of getting cancer. There's also a link between depression and having a disrupted sleep-wake cycle. In fact, a number of studies have shown a very strong correlation between high geomagnetic activity and an increase in the suicide rate. So to return to the question, there is very good evidence that geomagnetic disturbances can cause depression and other health problems in humans. The question we come to now is whether artificial electromagnetic fields are having a negative impact on our health and well-being. We of course are surrounded by artificial electromagnetic fields. It's one of the realities of living in the modern world with all its technology and gadgetry. And as the world becomes more technologically sophisticated, no doubt such exposure will increase, so we can't escape it. Now, as the question of adverse health effects from artificial electromagnetic fields is a very big question, a question I deal with at length in my book, I won't attempt to answer it in full here. Let me instead present a few points. Earlier I stated that both geomagnetic disturbances and artificial electromagnetic fields can suppress production of the hormone melatonin and consequently disrupt the sleep-wake cycle. 
So that's certainly one mechanism whereby artificial electromagnetic fields can cause harm to the body. But could there be other mechanisms involved? Well, yes, there are. And there's one particular mechanism I wish to discuss here. Heaps of studies have shown that artificial electromagnetic fields can induce a stress response in the body, specifically a state of chronic stress, which involves long-term activation of the fight-or-flight response. When we face a perceived danger, for example, a vicious dog, the fight-or-flight response is activated by the autonomic nervous system, or ANS. The ANS is made up of two components, the sympathetic nervous system, or SNS, and the parasympathetic nervous system, or PSNS. The SNS activates the physiological changes that occur during the fight-or-flight response, whereas the PSNS dampens those responses. The SNS, for example, tells the adrenal glands to pump large quantities of adrenaline and noradrenaline into the bloodstream. The adrenal glands also secrete the steroid hormone cortisol. Normally, of course, the body returns to a state of normality once the perceived threat has passed. And so all those stress hormones disappear from the body. In other words, the fight-or-flight response is deactivated. However, with those people who suffer from chronic stress, the fight-or-flight response gets activated so often, it's more or less continuously switched on. And this is exactly what studies have found with animals that have been exposed for long periods of time to artificial electromagnetic fields. That is, a state of chronic stress or long-term activation of the fight-or-flight response. This means high levels of stress hormones in the bloodstream. It also means such things as a higher incidence of cancer, immune system dysfunction, and all the other health problems that result from being in a state of chronic stress, including insomnia, learning and memory difficulties, fatigue, and weakness. We know that stress has an incredibly damaging effect on the body, especially if it's prolonged. So, to sum up, the adverse health effects that result from exposure to artificial electromagnetic fields are more or less identical to the symptoms of chronic stress. As I said, this is something I deal with at length in my book, so it's time we looked at the next topic, lightning. What a fascinating natural phenomenon. I don't think there's a single person listening to this who isn't amazed and maybe a little frightened by lightning. Now, I currently live in Darwin, Australia, which is famous for its spectacular displays of lightning, and it's located in the northern part of Australia, and it's Australia's lightning capital with around 80 thunderstorm days per year. And in America, the state with the highest amount of lightning activity is Florida, with an average of 75 to 105 thunderstorm days per year. So clearly those places on Earth with the highest amount of lightning activity can be found in the tropics. Lightning serves a number of important functions in nature. It contributes towards nitrogen fixation, and it also helps maintain the appropriate electrical balance in the atmosphere, being an important part of what's called the global electric circuit. Earlier I mentioned Schumann resonance, a phenomenon caused by global lightning activity, whereby extremely low frequency waves, or ELF waves, resonate in the Earth ionosphere cavity. These Schumann resonance signals are an important form of natural electromagnetic energy, and as I said, they exist in the extremely low frequency range. And it just so happens that much of the activity in the body, particularly human brainwave activity, operates in the extremely low frequency range. For example, the fundamental frequency of the Earth ionosphere cavity is 10.6 hertz, or cycles per second, while the mean alpha frequency is 10 hertz, and alpha waves, of course, are associated with a relaxed state of mind. So again, we're tuned to the electromagnetic activity of the Earth. But back to lightning. It's rare, but people do get struck by lightning, and the effects of lightning on the human body is something I explore at great length in the book. 
Now, as you'd expect, lightning and electric shock, the two being very similar, primarily affect the nervous system of the body, the body's electrical wiring. And in my book, I look at numerous cases of people who've been struck by lightning. In particular, I focus on the stranger aspects of lightning and electric shock injury. And as well as such effects as memory loss, sexual dysfunction, irritability, personality changes, and so on, these problems stemming from damage to the nervous system, there are also some really peculiar effects, some paranormal effects, if you will. For example, a lot of lightning strike survivors claim that since being struck, they've exerted an odd effect on electrical gadgets of all kinds. For example, that they can't wear a wristwatch without it malfunctioning. And even that street lamps blink out when they approach them which is a phenomenon called street lamp interference, and that's something I'll talk about later. Also, some survivors claim that their bodies generate an unusually large amount of static electricity, so that whenever they touch another person, that person receives an electric shock. All of these peculiar effects or symptoms are part of a condition called high-voltage syndrome, and again, I'll talk about that later. So those who've been struck by lightning can develop some peculiar abilities, even alleged psychic abilities. In fact, I was amazed to discover during the course of my research that many people who claim to be psychic either suffered at a young age a severe electric shock or were struck by lightning at a young age. But there are more mysteries in connection with lightning. How come some people get struck by lightning again and again? How do we explain these cases of human lightning rods like the Shenandoah National Park Ranger Roy Cleveland Sullivan? who was apparently struck by lightning an incredible seven times throughout his life, yet without being seriously harmed. As well as resulting in high-voltage syndrome, or HVS, being struck by lightning can also result in electromagnetic hypersensitivity, and that's the topic we come to now. Electromagnetic hypersensitivity, or EHS, is a condition whereby one feels extremely ill when exposed to practically any form of artificial electromagnetic radiation, whether it be from a cell phone, an electric fan, a computer, etc. Interestingly, it didn't really come into existence until around the 1980s, so it's very much a recent condition, and the incidence of this condition is rapidly increasing among the population. People with this condition are sometimes forced to live in a rural environment, to not use any electrical devices or even drive a car, and to take other extreme measures in order to try and limit their exposure to artificial electromagnetic fields. So for them it's very debilitating and very serious, and it has a huge impact on their lives. Of course, it all sounds a little extreme, doesn't it? And the question naturally arises as to whether EHS is a genuine condition or whether it's merely psychosomatic. And I'll be honest, I was extremely skeptical of EHS until I started researching the matter and realized that there is some scientific research to back up the claims of EHS sufferers. I should point out too that plenty of physicians around the world do take EHS seriously and have actually gained some success in treating those with the condition. What they've discovered is that EHS seems to be an allergic reaction and therefore involves a response on the part of the immune system in a similar manner to other allergic reactions. The view of EHS as a genuine allergic reaction is backed up by the research of such people as the Swedish dermatologist Olli Johansson, where EHS is recognized as a functional impairment, as well as Dr. Rena Bray, Dominique Belpom, and many others. So while it's easy to be skeptical of the claims of EHS sufferers and to think it's all in their heads, there is actually a firm body of research which suggests that EHS is a genuine rather than psychosomatic condition. But rather than look at that evidence here, it's time we examine the next question. What is high-voltage syndrome?
I touched on high-voltage syndrome or HVS earlier when I talked about some of the strange effects claimed by those who have been struck by lightning or have experienced severe electric shock, usually at a young age. People who suffer from HVS are also known as electric people. The symptoms or effects of HVS include problems with bodily static electricity. That is, for some reason their bodies generate large amounts of static electricity, even when they're properly grounded, for example, while immersed in a bathtub full of water. Another claim is that they exert an unusual influence on electrical devices and gadgets of all kinds, such as vacuum cleaners, irons, electric kettles, radios, computers, and so on. Oddly, they don't even need to touch these devices for the devices to suddenly malfunction for no apparent reason. They claim that light bulbs suddenly pop when they walk past them, that vacuum cleaners explode when they're using them, that computers crash all the time when they're around, and that sometimes compasses start spinning when they put their hand nearby. Since beginning my research on this topic, I've received numerous emails from credible people all over the world claiming that they exert an odd influence on electrical devices. There's no doubt whatsoever that some of these claims are either due to coincidence or various mundane causes. There's little doubt, for example, that if you live in a dry environment and frequently walk across carpeted surfaces, your body is going to build up a lot of static electricity causing numerous static shocks. The odd thing about electric people, however, is that in many cases the static electricity seems to be internally generated. We know that the human body can pick up static electricity, but there's no easy way to explain how the body might be able to generate its own static electricity. I've come to the conclusion that while some of the effects of HVS can be explained in terms of electrostatics, not all of them can. That perhaps even psychokinesis, or PK, is responsible in some instances. Poltergeist disturbances can, in some cases, involve genuine instances of PK, seemingly caused by the subconscious mind, and in my book I explore the close connection between poltergeistry and high-voltage syndrome. Interestingly, there is also a connection between high-voltage syndrome and electromagnetic hypersensitivity. For instance, both conditions appear to stem from a single incident of exposure to electromagnetism. In the case of HVS, it's typically lightning strike or electric shock that brings the condition into being. In the case of EHS, it's heavy exposure to artificial electromagnetic radiation. And I know of several cases where people developed EHS after being exposed to radio frequency radiation emitted by smart meters. I myself suffered ill effects from exposure to smart meter radiation, though fortunately I didn't develop EHS. But now to the topic of street lamp interference. Street lamp interference or SLI is a very weird phenomenon, although it's something that a lot of people have experienced. People who experience SLI are sometimes referred to as sliders. What happens in street lamp interference is that you might be walking down the street when suddenly the street lamp above you blinks out. Then as soon as you pass it, it blinks back on. Or maybe the street lamp was off to begin with and when you walk past it, it blinks on. Or maybe an entire row of street lamps blink out as you pass them. Or maybe this happens late at night while you're driving past street lamps in your car. Now let's be honest, it all sounds pretty ridiculous, doesn't it? Maybe it's all just coincidence. After all, street lamps are known to fail occasionally, and people are bound to walk past them at the precise moment they fail. We humans have a habit of ascribing meaning to the most trivial, mundane experiences. We see faces in rocks, for example, or we find a shell on the beach and assume it was left there just for us. When I first heard of SLI, I thought it was totally ridiculous, and I had absolutely no interest in the phenomenon. Eventually, I read Hilary Evans's excellent book on the topic. Then, after I'd written a couple of articles on the topic, I started receiving a lot of emails from very credible people from all over the world claiming to have experienced SLI. 
some on a regular basis. So that was very eye-opening for me. While undoubtedly most SLI experiences can be attributed to coincidence and other mundane factors, a small percentage of these experiences are not so easy to explain. When studying phenomena like SLI, it's important to look for patterns. And one very obvious pattern that emerges is the state of mind in which SLI typically occurs, which is a stressed or aroused state of mind. A lot of people say they're on edge when they experience the phenomenon. They also claim that the phenomenon more or less has a mind of its own, meaning SLI just happens. They can't get SLI to happen when they try to make it happen. This is very significant because it suggests that the subconscious rather than the conscious mind is responsible for causing SLI. It also suggests a connection between SLI and poltergeistry and that the disturbances caused by poltergeist agents often involve the agent being in a stressed state of mind. And these experiences seem to be a way for the agent to release pent-up hostility towards someone in the household. Indeed, most parapsychologists view poltergeist disturbances as incidents of RSPK, or recurrent spontaneous psychokinesis. And I'm very much of the opinion that some incidents of street lamp interference make sense within the context of RSPK. I'm also of the opinion that street lamp interference can best be understood as an aspect of high voltage syndrome or HVS rather than as a phenomenon in its own right as some paranormal researchers believe. Indeed a lot of sliders say that they affect numerous other electrical things besides just street lamps such as wristwatches and all the rest of it. The question of why mainly street lamps, what makes street lamps so special, can perhaps be answered with the suggestion that street lamps are easier to influence psychokinetically than many other electrical things. Now, when you consider that the human body is electrical in nature and that the human body emits an electromagnetic field, the question arises as to whether such things as street lamp interference might have an electromagnetic basis. The further question arises as to whether the ability we call psychokinesis, and indeed many other psychic abilities like telepathy, might in fact involve electromagnetism. Certainly parapsychologists have tried to explain PK and other psychic abilities in terms of electromagnetism, but have they been successful? During the early days of psychical research, parapsychologists conducted many experiments to try and get to the bottom of whether electromagnetism plays a role in such things as telepathy and psychokinesis. They believed that extremely low frequency waves or ELF waves might well be involved for the reason that ELF waves can travel around the Earth with little loss of energy as well as penetrate objects that electromagnetic energies shorter in wavelength are unable to penetrate. They used Faraday cages and other means of shielding out electromagnetic energy and they discovered, simply put, that no amount of shielding can prevent psychic abilities from functioning. This proved that psi abilities can't be explained in terms of electromagnetism and that perhaps some other form of energy is involved. And yet, the involvement of electromagnetism can't be ruled out entirely either, because as I explained at the beginning of this discussion, every single aspect of the paranormal, every parapsychological phenomena, has an electromagnetic dimension to it. In my book, I explore the possibility that there might be, behind psi abilities like telepathy and psychokinesis, some other form of energy. A form of energy that possesses properties similar to that of electromagnetism, but which isn't electromagnetism. Could this mysterious energy, or energy X, have something to do with the qi of Chinese philosophy, or William Reich's orgone, or so-called other subtle energies? And what about quantum physics? Can quantum physics explain psi to some extent? But now to the next topic, and indeed the final topic of this discussion, the UFO mystery. 
In my opinion, ball lightning, earth lights and other luminous phenomena produced by the earth are important components of the UFO mystery. Although I remain open-minded regarding the possibility of intelligent, perhaps humanoid life forms existing on other planets, I fail to see any evidence of an extraterrestrial component to the UFO mystery, as per all those wild stories of crashed flying saucers and grey aliens abducting humans for nefarious purposes. Rather, I think the solution to the UFO mystery is entirely terrestrial in nature, and that it encompasses such things as ball lightning and other natural phenomena. I've been interested in ball lightning for many years now, and I've poured over hundreds of ball lightning reports. Ball lightning is usually a foot or so in diameter. However, there does exist both miniature ball lightning and giant ball lightning. Ball lightning is associated with thunderstorms, and it usually appears near the ground following an incident of cloud-to-ground lightning. It appears to be some form of plasma. It can appear in a variety of different colours, including red, green, blue, yellow, and so on. It's also very elusive and is usually only seen for very brief periods of time. In most cases, it vanishes within a matter of seconds, decaying either explosively or silently, and usually it gives off a hissing sound and odour resembling ozone. Ball lightning can do some amazing things, things that seem to contradict the known laws of physics. For example, it can pass straight through walls, it can split into smaller balls, it can bounce along the ground, roll along the ground, squeeze through keyholes, enter homes via the chimney, leave perfectly circular holes in panes of glass, and even chase people around or interact with people in a manner that suggests some rudimentary form of intelligence. Indeed, in the ball lightning literature, one is bound to find many cases of so-called intelligent ball lightning, and these cases are extremely puzzling indeed. In what ways, then, does ball lightning shed light on the UFO mystery? To answer this question, we need to consider the phenomenon known as Foo Fighters, those small balls of light that pursued and toyed with military aircraft during World War II. The objects are described as being identical in appearance to ball lightning, and it's conceivable that they might have been some form of ball lightning that exists only at very high altitude. It's important to consider, too, the electromagnetic nature of ball lightning. The electromagnetic fields emitted by these objects might be capable of stimulating the temporal lobes of the brain, and thereby inducing hallucinatory experiences that later get interpreted by the witness as encounters with aliens. This is not that wild a possibility when you look, say, at the research of Michael Persinger and his famous God Helmet experiments. The God Helmet being a device designed to stimulate the temporal lobes of the brain using magnetic fields. Of course, I explore all this and more in the book, so I won't delve into that here. I hope you've enjoyed this presentation on the topic of my latest book, Strange Electromagnetic Dimensions. Although our harnessing of electromagnetism is in many respects a positive thing, providing countless benefits to humanity, I ask you to consider how the artificial alien energies we've been introducing into our environment might be harming our health and well-being, as well as how these energies might be shaping the way we experience the paranormal. Feel free to visit my blog, louisproud.net, as well as purchase my book through either the the New Page Books website or Amazon and other stores. Put your warm speed on hold, Graveyard Shift fan. Our illustrious host, Emmy. Why the hell does he always say that word illustrious? We'll be right back after this break with more shifty, yeah, like shitty awesomeness. I can't believe this guy. Who the hell does he think he is? Um, oh, okay, um, yeah, we'll, uh, 
we'll, we'll be right back. You're listening to the Graveyard Shift online radio talk show at www.blogtalkradio.com slash thegraveyardshift. If you want to call in and discuss with Emmy, you can call area code 347-237-5187. We'll be right back. Mr. Cosby, thank you so much for coming on to our show. I'm so glad we could get this time to talk, just you and me, and now we can finally clear up all this mess. So uh, just tell me, how do you feel? Boy, am I glad to be back here. I'm no good on my own. I was given two old days, and I just went crazy. Okay, uh, Mr. Cosby, please, you know, let's, come on, let's get serious here. Let's just talk about these allegations, shall we? I don't know where you get these people from. Sometimes I think it's drugs. Well, they've been popping up all over, sir. I mean, you you know, what did you think would happen when you did what you did? Now your body doesn't want it, so it starts to kick it out whether you want to hold it or not, so you begin to... Sir, sir, that, that, sir, that was not appropriate at all. You're just, you're putting yourself further and further in the hole with that one, okay? Let's just stay on task, shall we? What exactly... Were you thinking back then? I mean, you know, you were with these women. What was going through your mind? I mean, you were a happily married man. Now you feel it coming. All right, I'm ready. Holding on, holding on. Going for a ride, yes. Bring it out, yes. Here it comes on. Where's your brother? And your muscles lock No, Mr. Cosby, no, no, that's... What, what are you doing? Uh, look, look. No, no. Can can we please stop that? Let's get serious, please. I didn't come here to tell you that. Okay, well then, that's better. I uh, wanted to discuss some very serious matters. Now we're getting somewhere. Go on. Dentists. Dentists. What? Dent? What? No, no. Look, I arranged this interview so you can talk to us about what you were really up to back then in the late '60s. Now, come on. Oh. God, no. Sir, control yourself. Uh, look, just tell me at least that you use protection. Come automatically, the muscles tighten and push. Uh, I'll just I'll pretend I didn't hear that. So I guess we can just forget the question of whether or not you're guilty. What have you got to say for yourself? Oh, God. Stop it. Dear God, that's disgusting. Look, can, what, look what, would you just, what would you say to these people if you saw them today? Oh, my God. This interview has gone to poop. God. Okay, that's it. I'm done. I'm done. That's it. No more. Goodbye.